Join Kim and Ketsia as they explore life without alcohol, after both being heavily immersed in a drinking culture for years. They explore different topics of sobriety each week, ranging from friendship to motherhood. By sharing personal stories from their past, they talk about their experiences of what it is like to now thrive rather than just survive the weekends sober. Okay, so welcome to the weekend sober. Um, this is Kim and Ketsia, and this week we have a guest um, that I know from Colby. Um, we have Ben Tup here, and Ben and I go way back. I know Ben from yeah the college years, and Ben, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a short while, but uh, here we are, Colby Mules back together. Colby Mules together again. I know it has been a few years, but I'm so glad you are here because you have a very cool story to tell. And, you know, I've followed you on social media and all that you've been up to. And I know your wife, because she's also a mule. Um, and that's, you know, everything you have been doing is so unbelievably cool. So you have such a unique story. And I can't wait to, pardon the pun, dive in. Um, so <laughs> let's do it. Why don't you tell us, tell our listeners, like, a little about you. Like, obviously, you went to Colby. So you got that going for you. You're pretty cool yes. in that part. <laughs> right, right. So I actually grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and decided to get out of the southeast and moved to the middle of Maine. Don't know why I did that, um, but it made sense at the time and graduated from from Colby and went straight into teaching. And not only did I jump into teaching, but I jumped into junior boarding school. And this is a small kind of niche in the educational system in the U.S. and the private educational system in that I taught fifth through ninth graders who lived with me as well. So it was it was kind of funny. But I found myself the second week of just graduating from from college uh, that fall you know, talking to my twin brother who's out at bars in Boston, like hanging out. And here I am trying to get my fifth graders to jump in the shower and uh, and be responsible. And it was super, super high time-wise. It, it was everything. You know, I had to do everything for these kids. Um, I was actually engaged to my wife, Gretchen, at the time. Um kind of a anomaly in itself and that we got engaged really young. And uh, I tried to make it back to Colby as much as possible to, to see her, but it was hard because I was in charge of all these fifth grade boys and I was teaching seventh grade English. I was coaching. I was an advisor. Um, and, and finally, when, when, when Gretchen graduated, we got married and uh, we started another junior boarding school because I decided, you know, I kind of like this age group. It's kind of fun. But with that kind of came a party-like atmosphere, um, different different from, from college. Um, you know, college is you can get away with anything and everyone's partying any day of the week and you can always find your your group of people to hang out with. And if I wanted to get together and, and party on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, it doesn't matter. I could figure out there was a group out there. 
Whereas in the teaching world, you kind of have to go out of your way to, to find people to hang out with. Um, but I soon found that that wasn't very hard either. And it was at that point that I, I think that for me, it was okay. It was, if I was stressed out, then I'd go and, and go on a bender with, with my buddies. Um, and, and then suddenly as the years went by and I got older and had a family, those buddies kind of disappeared. There were some, um, but I still was able to stay up with the work and I became the director of admissions and I did what I needed to do. But, you know, my whole life I'd been high stress, high, high anxiety. Uh, I remember growing up with panic attacks on a weekly basis and it, they were never dealt with. And, and, you know, the whole idea of going to a therapist or a psychiatrist was so foreign. It was almost like a threat to me um, from my parents. Like, if you continue with this behavior of being so crazy and irrational that you will go to uh, one of these doctors. So I found that the best way to deal with it was with, with alcohol. And, and alcohol was my substance of choice. And up until, you know, I, I found that up until about 15 years ago, that's when I started to kind of go hard and really hide it. Uh, I was drinking, you know, a half a pint of vodka every night and like six or seven beers. That was my outlet. Um, you know, I was hiding all the booze. I had it down to a science. Um, and it was, a, I, I remember I was coming back from the liquor store one time and I'd snuck off. And I remember looking in the rear view mirror and being like, Oh, like you got a problem. Like this is a problem. And of course the addict in me would, would then five seconds later say, no, you're fine. Like everyone does this. Like it's, it's okay. Like you're just taking care of yourself. Um, but things went downhill pretty quickly, uh, about 12 years ago. And, you know, I would just come home and, you know, I was depressed and everyone knows that alcohol and depression is pretty much the worst thing possible. Um, and I also used alcohol to celebrate. You know, I, I grew up in a family of six kids and, and we were always hanging out. We were always partying. Uh, you know, my oldest brother is 10 years older than me and he was a is was a hard partier and and it was a tough way to grow up if we didn't want to be a part of that it was just a given that that was going to be a part of my lifestyle so you know 12 years ago i i really was getting in the dregs of it and you know my wife gretchen and all my family members were like there's something seriously wrong with ben like he is not himself. He's not acting right. You know, he's, um, again, I was hiding the alcohol pretty well. You know, I would get caught from time to time, but I was pretty good at it. And then 11, almost 11 years ago to the day, uh, 11 years ago on April, um, I had a panic attack and 
I said, Gretchen, we have to go to the hospital. Like I'm, I'm having a heart attack. There's something wrong with me. And we go into those little kind of partitioned rooms with the cloth dividers, which were like holding areas until they actually had the doctors look at you in the separate rooms. And I said to the nurse after like three hours, I'm like, come on, like, what is going on? Will you just admit me already? And she said, well, we can admit you when your blood alcohol content comes down below the legal limit. And I was like, whoops, <laughs> you know, this is 1130 the next day. I'd stopped drinking the night before. Um, I, I, was, I, I said to my uh, psychiatrist, once I got to rehab, I was like, how is that possible? And he was like, when you were drinking that much, your liver is like in fluctuations and sometimes it's processing, sometimes it's not, and you never know what your body's absorbing and, and what it's not. And um, my question to you, Ben, is why were you poisoning yourself for so long? Uh, that's what we got to figure out the answer to. Um, so, you know, my wife Gretchen was like, okay. And I was like, okay, yep, I'll go to rehab. This guy right here, send me away, I'm done. Like ready to go, send me away, I'm, I, I, I need to work on this, I'm ready. And I never, you know, in the back of my mind, I, I always thought about what if I went away to rehab or what if I stopped drinking, but it was never a reality. I think even up until that time, I think I even said something, well, I can have like a beer every now and then, right? And, yeah. and, and Gretchen was like, what are you talking about? Like, you, we, we're not even talking about that right now. Okay. Don't even think about it. So I was so fearful of giving up on my privilege of having alcohol for the rest of my life because I didn't understand how it would be humanly possible to exist in my world without having that a piece of it because it was such a huge part of my living. Uh, on a daily basis with everything I did, you know, everything surrounded it. And it wasn't until the prospect, prospect of it all being given up, it wasn't until that point that I realized, oh, my gosh, there's such so finely tied into everything that I do. So I ended up <laughs> going to uh, Silver Hill Hospital in Connecticut, which is like a it's like a paradise. Um, and I, I, I kind of felt bad because, you know, Gretchen would come with these two little kids and here I am like in like the nicest house possible, like with a swimming pool. And it was, it was, it was honestly like a country club. Um, but at the same time it had the professionals there that I needed uh, and, and some fellow addicts um, who I could share stories with. Uh, with that base, I was like ready to go. Uh, and as, as, I, as I refer more and more people to rehab facilities right now, their, their main question in going is, will I be okay just going this one time? Like, I hear, I hear relapse, 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 and see all these percentages. Am I going to be okay? And I, I just say from my personal point of view, it's what you make of it. And 
if you go into this 110%, like I go into everything, then you're going to be great. And, and you're going to give yourself the tools to prevent that relapse and to have a successful recovery. And I didn't really know what a successful recovery looked like at that point. But I did know that I was willing to do anything possible to get it. So I did my 90 and 90. Um, I, I would even go to two meetings some days. I spent five weeks at Silver Hill. I spent one extra week there because I couldn't stand to think about going back to school with all the kids still there and having all those questions posed to me. I wasn't ready for that. So I decided to wait an extra week until after graduation. And then once that was done, I was like, okay, I'm in the clear. I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh, and one of the classic stories that I have about my rehab experience is honestly, the third day I was at rehab, I, I'm getting off the bus. It was pouring with rain. So we took the bus down from the dining hall and I'm getting off of the bus. And there's one of my former students from Rumsey right outside the bus who they themselves had been referred there for the psychiatric part of the hospital. I'm like, oh my gosh, like it's all coming rolling up. And I'm like, hi, Caroline. And she's like, Mr. Tough, what are you doing here? I was like, uh, just just here for the stay, you know? <laughs> but we, you know, from that point on, we were, we were totally cool and, and, and we'd have um, meals together every now and then and, and it was all good. And then I, I think it was at that point that I realized like, you know what? <laughs> I don't really care if people know whether I'm an alcoholic or an addict. You know, if I can help people understand that it's actually a quite a common thing and it's not a terrible thing. And if I can help kids in particular, if I can help them have someone to look up to and have someone as a resource for them when they themselves or a friend or, or a family member is going through this, then it's all worth it. And for the ones that do have a problem with it, then they have their own demons most likely. And I don't really care. <laughs> uh, my, my dad once told me um, that when it comes to friendships, it's about quality over quantity. And I've surrounded myself with a few amazing people. And it is just a few people right now, but that's okay. That's all I need. And uh, it, it's, it's always funny when I, when I go to friends' houses and they have like 15, 20 people over of their close friends. And I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, that's not, that's not how I, uh, that's not how I roll. Um, my, my group, I, I can fit on one, one hand. Uh, and that group has, this is like, so I just love listening to you. I can literally listen to you all day, Ben. You're, you. so, you're such a good speaker. You 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 tell your stories so eloquently. Um, I just love it. And I love what you're saying in terms of um, how you felt sort of not, and I hate to use the word shame, ashamed, but it was almost like in the, the beginning of sobriety or, you know, when you stop drinking, there is that bit of like coming to terms with your 
shame and accepting your story and accepting, you know, what you're doing and, you know, coming to terms with this is my, this is my thing, as they say in, in the luckiest club, um, you know, and I love that you were like, I'm going to be somebody that, you know, these students can look to um, as a resource. And, you know, you realize that in that moment with that student. And I mean, maybe not in that exact moment, but going forward, um, and I'm assuming that was sort of maybe part of the second part of your story that you're going to tell us in a little bit, but I think it's so motivating and it's so beautiful. And I think that's just really cool because I think so many people can relate to that. I know I can was, it was the hardest part for me was what are people going to think? Like, how is it going to be perceived? And, you know, it's, it's, it resonates with so many. Don't you think, Katia? Yeah. Cause you kind of keep up this facade for so long. And I think letting that go is hard because you built this whole image around who you are and you show up as a certain person in these situations. And then it's kind of humbling. Like you said, you ran into your former student and it comes full circle and you're like, and there's the teacher. I can hear this very strong voice of a teacher in you, obviously. So that part comes through too. So I just, I really relate to that. You kind of, it's like, how do you let go well, I wrote here, how do you give up something that's so ingrained in you, right? And then how do you, in that letting go process, it's not like you just turn into the butterfly the second that you're the, the what is it, the chrysalis or the caterpillar. So there's an in-between icky stage where you're like all goopy and gross and like becoming this <laughs> new thing. And the world has to see it sometimes because when you're, when you went to rehab, it's like, okay, you can keep things a secret, but that's what you did when you were drinking. You were keeping secrets. You were telling lies. So it's like, now you want that freedom to be able to exhale and just be like, this is me. This was a thing I went through. It doesn't define me. It's part of my story, right? So I just really like that. I respect that. I respect it too. Um, yeah, keep going. Sorry I interrupted you, Ben. Keep going. No, you're, you're all good. Um, so, yeah, you know, for, for me, the, the hardest thing that I've struggled with in sobriety is friendships, um, I think. And I have my, like, core people, but there's always something in me wanting to be kind of back in, in, in those Colby days or in those school days where I'm surrounded by a lot of people. And there's something ingrained in me saying that that's part of where you get your self-worth, right? It's you, you get it from people who are with you all the time and, and you're getting it as a group together. Um, and, and now that I've realized that none of that matters, it's reassuring myself that, okay, like you've got your people. It, it it's quality, not, not quantity. And, that has also allowed me to find my peace and solitude through swimming. And I, I actually found it through my first sponsor at Silver Hill. And, um, and, and this guy, Ken, who had a, he's, he was Irish and, and big time triathlete, one of the top marathon runners from Ireland back in the day. And he said, 
on a daily basis what triathlon and all these things meant to him. And I said to him after one day, I said, after a meeting, I said, you know, could you be my sponsor? Because I love your accent and I know that you're going to hold me accountable. And two, do you think I could learn how to swim like you did? And he was like, yep, absolutely on both ends. You've got the build, you can do it. Um, just put your mind to it. And uh, to this day, I, I still talk to Ken on a weekly basis, and he's still doing his Ironman um, competitions and, and kicking butt. And the the best part is, is that we had a question and answer uh, series behind the curtain. He he has a a, a presentation that he does at uh, in Rye, New York. And at the end of the presentation, it's just one-on-one -on -one with him giving me questions. And then I had a chance to ask him questions. I said, what was your first impression of me? And he said, I thought you were an obnoxious prick. And I was like, what? He was like, yeah, you were coming into these AA meetings three days sober, like you own the place, telling these stories. You were so well-spoken and you were so well put together that there must have been something behind it. <laughs> So I was like, oh, I apologize for that. And he was like, oh, was I wrong? <laughs> and he's like, well, maybe a little bit. You're still kind of a prick sometimes. But, um, you know, the, it, it, it was then I was like, okay, th this, is just, uh, this is just classic. And um, so I, I got into triathlon right the day after I left Silver Hill. And I started to swim and well, it wasn't really swimming at that time. It was like almost making it across the length of a pool, not quite. But after three months, I was able to swim about half a mile, not pretty, not in a pretty way, but I could do it. And um, after six years of very competitive triathlon, I, I realized that I was ready to be done because I'm also really competitive. Um, Kim knows, but back back. In at Colby, we had a thing called iPlay, and iPlay was intramural, like sports. And we prided ourselves on winning as many iPlay championships as possible. And all you got was a t shirt at the end. <laughs> so we won the soccer, we won the ultimate frisbee. And it was my freshman year when we were playing ultimate, uh, we were playing um, softball, and I was taunting the other team, like shaking my butt or something, and I tore the meniscus in my knee and had to get surgery. <laughs> and and I was like, that is like my, what are the chances that that was my worst injury of all my sporting career? And, <laughs> um, you know, so, so when it came to triathlon, I again became very, very competitive. And when I would line up at the start, I'd look at people's calves to see how old they were. And I'd say, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you. And it was unhealthy. And it, it wasn't why I wanted to do the sport. I, I enjoyed the training side. But when it came to like game day and doing the triathlons themselves, I was so overcome with the spirit of wanting to win. Uh, it, it, it countered the productive side of things. And I found that you know what? I'm actually halfway decent at swimming. If I can kind of put my mind to it, I can continue with it. And so I, I just started swimming more and more and more. And, you know, three mile swims turned into 12 and a half mile swims, turned into 20 mile swims, turned into 25 mile swims. And 
Um, it was so much fun. And at the same time, it was very, very testing and grueling. And it wasn't until Matt Corliss, who's the producer of my movie, uh, Swim Tough, he came to me and, and he said, you know what? Like, I want to make a movie of you, but not because of how awesome your swims are, but about how you overcome adversity because your swims are just like your sobriety and you work through it and you get obstacles and you have really sucky times and you have unbelievably awesome times. And that's what, you know, that's what life is. That's what our journeys are. And, and I want to capture that. And I was like, let's do it. Um, and, and, and that's how this movie came to be a, a year and a half ago. And, and then, you know, Matt came up to Vermont where I live uh, a few times and also spent a week in Rhode Island while I did my last swim from, I became the first person to swim from Providence, Rhode Island to Jamestown, which is the whole length of Narragansett Bay. And, uh, he, he, he got to capture it all and all my buddies who came in from all over to, to support me and my family. And now I'm in the position of, okay, like now it's time to take this movie and, and, and make some, make a difference in, in people's lives. And like my twin brother was like, you know, you need to talk to corporations, you need to talk to colleges. And I was like, no, like I, I want to talk to middle schools and high schools because that's where I belong and that's where I'm going to have the most difference. Like I'm not that worried about making, yeah, it's nice to make money and, and do it that way. Um, but I can make this work. And, and at the same time, I can affect the most people in the most positive way that I can by getting it out to them. And, and so that's what I, I've started to be start doing right now. I'll have hopefully the final draft of the movie by not this weekend, but next weekend, which is really exciting. I can't wait to watch it. And then I'll be also going to um, a lot of film festivals across uh, the, the U S mostly and doing question and answers. And, um, the, the, the really neat thing is that like addict, addiction movies are kind of, they've always been like a genre to themselves, but I was able to make it a much bigger thing because my story is about addiction primarily, but it's also about like a crazy kind of athletic feat. Um, and I'm not a great swimmer. Like I'm not a really good swimmer. People will watch my, watch me swim. They'll be like, you're, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do that. And I know that, but I'm unstoppable. Like I can just put my mind to it and I, that's it. I'm going to go. And once I have that, I'm going to go. That's it. It's incredible. And that speaks to so much about your character and the way you handle adversity and, you know, somebody who has been through what you have been through in terms of sobriety and recovery, it, you know, like that's, 
that's why you're able to do the things you do, I think. And it, it's a special kind of person that can do that. Um, I think it's incredible. And I have so much respect for you. It's awesome. Thanks. I'm just sitting here in awe too. I know. It's so cool. I, I cannot wait for this movie to come out. I think it's just such a cool story. And what I love about it is that it doesn't, I, I, I love that it doesn't focus so much on the actual addiction aspect, but it, it really focuses on the hope and, um, you know, af like what happens after you stop drinking. And that's what's so cool about the actual movie itself is that it, am I allowed to say that I've already seen it? <laughs> you should know all this. <laughs> Wait, I cut this out if I'm not supposed to know that. Um, yeah, you're one of like five, I think. <laughs> that fact like, that it, you know, like it is such a story about, um, you know, the hope that comes after the journey, you know, once the journey begins. And it's not about what led you to it, you know? And that's why I love the movie. It's like, it's such a beautiful story, you know? It's an, and it's kind of breaking down that stigma of just because you have a problem with alcohol doesn't mean you can't, doesn't like <laughs> ban you to this life of like, you know, this is what you have to do for the rest of your life is focus on your recovery. It's like, yeah, because of that, look what I get to do with my life, you know? Plus, it, it showcases that whole idea of addiction was one part of your story, and and look what you've done with your life now. But also, you're you're reaching your hand back and you're helping other people. And I think it's amazing that you want to focus on that sort of age group because that really is when a lot of these problems start happening. Things are happening at home and with, and with our peers and things like that. And it's like by not talking about these things then or creating a stigma around it or saying, you know, this is a shameful thing, those kids are not going to talk to us. So by putting it out there and saying, this is what I went through and this is the tenacity and the, um, you know, the grueling thing that I put myself through proves that you're not chained to that addiction forever. Um, whether you call yourself an addict or not, a recovering addict or whatever, Everybody, could, I think, should be free to choose their language. But I think just talking about it, those conversations are so important to those kids, you know. So I just really, I think it's great. This is a movie not made just for people in recovery. Mm -hmm. This is a, a movie for everyone. Yeah. And everybody can get something out of this. And if nothing else, then taking care of yourself and taking care of your, your, your mind, body, spirit, finding outlets and trying something new later in your life is, is totally acceptable and should be encouraged where we, we end up becoming such wimps. Why do we always have to have excuses to try something new? Right. I had sobriety and I had suddenly had a lot of time on my hands when I wasn't drinking or wasn't under the influence. So I started swimming and through swimming, I've also found peace. And, you know, that's where I spend time with my higher power. That's where I do all my thinking. That's where I do everything. And that's like my therapy because yeah. it's, it's, I'm like one of those people who I, I can't like sit down and, and meditate in one place. You know, I would, I get my mindfulness and I get my, 
peace and quiet when I'm either in the pool or in the ocean or, or in a lake. And, you know, I was reminded in, on, on January 7th, I got a phone call from one of my former students' fathers. And, and I, I taught, we'll call this boy, um, John. And I, I taught John at, at my last school, Rumsey Hall, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. And uh, he is a sophomore in college. And he said, Ben, I don't know what to do. Uh, you know, John is a mess. He's always loved you and um, you know him best to listen to you, but he's a mess. He failed out of college. Um, he's smoking a lot of pot. He's drinking. Like, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, let me just talk to him um, starting, you know, tomorrow. And so I started talking to him and, and, and spoke to him for about a month. And then I got a FaceTime and he had a knife in his hand and he was threatening himself. He was threatening his father. So I had to call the cops and, and get the cops involved. I got him taken to the local hospital and put on a three-day um, hold in the hospital. And I convinced him to go to Silver Hill. And it was like, I was like, okay, that is going to be awesome. This is exactly what he needs. And he called me today crying. Um, he's about... 15 days into his stay at Silver Hill. And I went up, he, he wouldn't let his dad take him from the hospital at Silver Hill. So I went up and took him to Silver Hill uh, before I, I was flying down to Atlanta uh, a few weeks ago. And, and he called me today in tears saying, like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Like, I'm finally figuring out what's wrong with me, why I've done the things I've done and how I need to change. Like, why couldn't this have happened earlier? And I said, you are so lucky. You're 21 years old. I know. You know, you are so lucky it's happening now instead yeah. of instead of at 32 or, or later on yeah. in your life. Um, and, and, and that kind of was the, the last push to me saying, yeah, you know what? You need to go push this message to the middle and, and upper yeah. schoolers because – they're still getting the same sort of addiction prevention that I had, which was a bunch of addicts coming in and glamorizing their um, drunkologues or their use their using times. And, you know, half of them leave there saying, Oh, I kind of want to try that. That sounds awesome. Um, at least that was, that's how it was in, in my high school. And, and there has to be a shift. And if I think for me, the, biggest fear I had was, or two fears, was not being accepted by my peers because I didn't drink, and two, not being able to have fun anymore in yeah. social situations. Like, that was so hard for me to grasp. And now, I just realized that it just doesn't matter. And uh I will be the first one out in the dance floor now. I remember I used to have to like drink like 10 beers before I could even think about getting on the dance floor. And now I could care less. And the reason for that is because of everything 
else that's kind of aligned with me in my understanding of myself. It has nothing to do with my dancing skills. I haven't gotten any better. Um, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a way of understanding your self worth and the fact that you don't need the substance to numb you to do things that you think you need to do to build up your confidence. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it, I didn't realize Ben how similar, um, our journeys have been in the sense that my, and I've only been sober for, you know, a little over two years, two and a half years, but my most difficult struggle so far has been the um, social friendship aspect. And that was probably the one thing that held me back for so long and kept me drinking was that question. How will I be accepted? What will people think of me? Will I still be able to have fun? It was such a part of my everyday life, my weekend, you know, just the culture of everything that I found myself to be a part of. And I just didn't know how, how else to live my life. I, it was just, how could I have fun without it? And it's incredible now to look back and think, how did I find that to be fun? Like, it's mind blowing to think that I would center my life around drinking because it was like literally like the I would chase that first 20 minute buzz you know that feeling and I keep trying to get that that experience but it literally was like only 20 minutes that I really felt because I was just like chasing it and getting so drunk and so blacked out and such a hot mess it's really fascinating to see this shift in our lives you know in our priorities and, and like you said, like to understand now my self-worth, what I perceive to be, you know, important these days. And yeah, the confidence that you can get without a bottle. You don't need what alcohol to stand up in front of a group of people and speak, to walk into. I used to feel like I couldn't even walk into a room full of people. I was so self-conscious. I would have to go to a party with a buzz. I couldn't get on a dance floor without having any, you know, it was, I was so drained of any kind of, you know, belief in myself that I could handle myself in any situation. Alcohol had to be in my body at all times by the end, you know, I couldn't even go to the grocery store. I was terrified. <laughs> like, how yeah, do I, I have to have a little to cut the, ugh. You start feeling paranoid. You're just like, People are looking at me, whatever it is. It's like people are all going through their own things, whether it's it's not even like you said, Ben, it's not even just about addiction. It's about anything that you're going through, any struggle that you're going through, any journey of self-discovery that you're on, you're on that journey yourself. And there's other people doing their own thing too. And at the end of the day, like you're gonna come across people who maybe only like three people in your life that are there for the long haul. Like everyone else is going to fall off. And it's like, why did I care what these people thought about me? And why did I spend so much time with them every, every weekend, every event, you know, whatever it was just devastated if we didn't have plans, because when I wasn't doing that, I didn't know who I was. And yeah. that's what this whole journey has been about. And sobriety is figuring out who Katia is underneath that, you know? Yeah. Um, the 
it, the toughest ahead. phone call, the toughest phone call I, I received was uh, three days into my time at, at Silver Hill. And it was Gretchen calling. I told her just give me a couple of days to get situated and kind of figure my stuff out. And I, I didn't, I, I was so lost when she dropped me off there that I was just like, okay, I need a little bit of time. And, and I remembered with my homesick kids that if we told them to wait two or three days to call their parents, then they were better off in the end. So I was like, okay, uh, I'll be better off. Give me a call in three days. And she called me and I was like, oh, like you have no idea. I am in a whole nother world. Like this place is amazing. I've already learned so much about myself. Like this place is awesome. Like I'm on such a good journey. You know, I'm, I'm sober and I'm excited about this. And, uh, you know, Gretchen said, well, that's, that's great. And I was like, well, how are things there? Like, how are the kids? And, I had a, uh, I think that my son Wyatt was three or four, and then my daughter was pretty young, like one, one, one or two. And um, she said, well, you know, Wyatt is actually really calm and collective now that your erratic behavior is gone. And I was like, I just started crying. And I was like, oh, man, like. I had that much of a fat of an effect on, on him while I was drinking. And for me, I always thought that I was getting away with it and that I wasn't affecting people. And it isn't until it's gone or, or when you remove those people or remove the actions itself that you realize, Holy cow, you were really like messing things up. Um, and I think selfishly, I always thought it was just me that I was messing up when I did it, not the people around me. Uh, and, and, and now to this day, we were down in Atlanta filming for the movie and finally my, both my kids agreed to get interviewed and I was kind of around the corner listening and, and both of them said they don't remember when I went away. Um, except that Wyatt said, like, coming to visit me, he thought it was really cool there because it was really nice and what have you, but that was it. Um, but, you know, to, to think about the damage that we do in our, when we're using uh, and how to repair that damage and gain that trust back, um, that is so hard. Trust is such a difficult thing once it's gone or, or once you've lost it, especially I found, you know, for, for drinking with a spouse or with a family member, you know, parents, brothers, sisters. It's incredible. I mean, so I was thinking that you didn't actually, we talked so much about your sobriety and what led to the making of the movie and everything. Um, what, so tell the listeners what the actual movie, so the, what's the movie called? <laughs> oh, so the name of the movie is uh, Swim Tough, How I Swam My Way Out of a Bottle. Okay, awesome. And it is being released when? It will be kind of soft released in about two weeks, and then it will be kind of on a more major release 
sometime this summer. Um, the, the goal is to get it picked up by like a Netflix or uh, one of those okay. uh, streaming. So exciting. Awesome. And the big, the uh, like the swim that you, it documents the big one is the swim from where to where? It was from Fields Point, Providence. So East Providence, right at the river, um, all the way south down past Prudence Island, down into Jamestown Harbor. And it took how many hours? Just under 15. So it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a long trip. So cool. I cannot wait for people to see this and to hear more about your story. Ben, this is so exciting. Thank you so much for being on our podcast and for sharing so much about everything about Ben. Like, this is wonderful. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah. And we'll put everything in the show notes and you let us know where we can find you. Are you on Instagram? Yes. uh, At Ben.tough. Yep. Awesome. Thank you, Ben. And good luck with everything. Have a great weekend sober. Bye, guys.